Why did God allow sin in the world? Wouldn't it have just been easier just to prevent it, right? And we could have just had Ben and Eden ever since the beginning and never had trouble. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2. How do you like this weather? It's supposed to be 72 today. That's the high. I have friends in Montana, and it is snowing in Montana. A lot of snow. So opening season is next week, and it's going to be interesting for the bird hunters up there, I'm sure. So at any rate, Ephesians chapter 2, Lord willing, will be in the first 10 verses today. The first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 really are the biography of the sinner. Uh, verses 1 to 3, we're going to talk about our spiritual past. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Here in verses 4 to 6 and 8 to 9, talk about our spiritual present. We are saved mercifully by God's grace through faith. We were made alive in Christ, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places. And verse 7 to 10, talk about our future. We're saved in order to do good works in the future. We're going to be trophies of God's grace for all eternity. Now, in the Greek, the first seven verses of chapter 2 are one sentence. I don't know if you ever were taught uh, to write short sentences, but this is a compound sentence that goes on and on and on and on and on. But in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, that's all one sentence too. So Paul was really good with commas. Just, you know, write, 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 write. He just keeps talking and talking and talking, kind of like me. At any rate, uh, all one verse. And the subject of the first seven verses of chapter 2 are God. The subject is God. Obviously, the object is us. And there are three main verbs. We're made alive, we're raised up, and we're seated with Christ. So we want to talk about that today. So the main point uh, of this lesson is that we were once dead to God, and now we're alive in God. So we've moved from death to life. Now, our contemporary culture today, uh, around the world, and many churches today tend to minimize sin, or even just deny it. When people sin, they try to cover it up. They call it other words. We have all sorts of interesting euphemisms for sin. We don't call adultery adultery. We call it an affair. Stealing is just borrowing, taking what's rightfully ours. You owed me anyway. Deception is just a, a no, no, it's a, it's a mistruth. It's a white lie, whatever it is. Sinful people, that's us, will try almost anything to fix their problems themselves. I mean, today we believe if, you know, if you have a problem, go to a 12-step program, Try harder, get a little discipline in your life, go to counseling, meditate, get medical treatment, anything you can do to try and fix your sin problem. The story is told of a man who owned a pet snake. One day he purchased a little white mouse to feed the snake and placed it inside the glass cage where the snake was sleeping in a pile of sawdust. 
I remember one time I was asked to house sit, and they had me feed the snake. They had a couple of them. And it was always interesting going down and buying the mice and putting them in the cage. At any rate, the mouse is now in the cage with the snake who's sleeping in a pile of sawdust, and the mouse has a problem. Would you agree? Yes. A serious problem. He needed a solution quickly or else he would be swallowed alive. So the mouse began to cover up the sleeping snake with sawdust chips until it was completely buried in sawdust. Mouse thought he'd solve the problem. Not really. Covering up sin doesn't eliminate sin. The solution for the mouse came from outside the cage. The owner, the man, took pity on the mouse and removed it from the cage. Now, we should feel sorry for the snake because he's going to go hungry, but the mouse could not say, save itself from the snake, right? Even trying to cover up sin. Just like the mouse, was it not for the saving grace of our master Jesus' hand, sin would swallow us alive. As a matter of fact, it already has. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So the first step to dealing with sin is to understand sin from God's point of view, not our point of view. Here's the principle. Before Christ rescued us, our sins had separated us from God and we were spiritually dead. I was going to say dead or nervous, but I didn't. You should be happy, right? But now I said it anyway. Before Christ rescued us, our sins had separated us from God and we were spiritually dead. Now, I want you to know that Paul first uses the word you. You. He's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to the believers in the Ephesians church that are not Jewish. Now, the Jewish folks in the Ephesian church would go, boy, howdy, they are dead because they thought they were spiritually superior to the Gentiles and they believed that the Gentiles were sinners but that they were Abraham's seed and they weren't. Of course, in verse 2, Paul now, who is a Jew, says, and not only you, but we too were dead in our trespasses and sins. So both Jews and Gentiles are sinners in the sight of God because Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this word dead comes from the word, the Greek nekros. And we get nekros, when something's dead flesh, it's, it's nekros. At any rate, it's one who has breathed their last. It means lifeless. Now, before regeneration, before new life in Christ, sinners are not spiritually sick. They're spiritually dead. They're not just ignorant who need teaching. They're not wounded who need healing. They don't need resuscitation. They need resurrection. Sin has not wounded us. It's killed us. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie called The Prince's Bride. Remember that? Prince's Bride? Inconceivable. I mean, there's all sorts of words in that movie that are really, really good. I love that movie. Inigo Montoya takes his dead friend Wesley to Miracle Max, Billy Crystal. And Montoya doesn't believe that Miracle Max can help because, after all, Wesley is dead. I know I should turn around. Yes? Okay, I'm going to do it. Now, very good. So Miracle Max tells, tells Inigo Montoya, it so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. 
there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive, right? Spiritually speaking, before we met Jesus, you and I were not slightly dead. We were not mostly dead. We were all dead. Room temperature dead. Face down in the water dead. I mean, I could go on and on. Kaput, as they say in German. We were like Lazarus in the tomb before Jesus raised him from the dead. We were in the grave and we were in a state of decay and we stunk. Yes? Say yes. The truth of it is, whether you're a billionaire or homeless, whether you're world famous or completely unknown, without Christ, everyone is spiritually dead and decaying. Now, physically dead people are unable to respond to any stimuli. That's a pretty good definition of dead, by the way unable to respond to any sort of stimuli. Dead people don't feel pain, hunger, thirst. They don't think, they don't talk, they don't walk. Matter of fact, I know some people like that and they, they seem to be alive, but anyway. <laughs> dead people aren't able to do anything. And spiritually dead people are in exactly the same condition. Those who are spiritually dead the Bible says, are unable to even understand spiritual things, let alone respond to them. Second, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man or woman does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them, and they cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. When you share your faith with people, unless the Holy Spirit regenerates them, opens their eyes, what you say to them seems foolish. It doesn't make sense. And scripture says a natural person, a person who's unsaved, a person who does not have the Holy Spirit living in them is spiritually dead because of their sin and they cannot comprehend the things of the Lord. Sin is rebellion against God's will and God's way, and that results in death. And scripture says we're dead in trespasses. Now, the word trespasses literally means false steps. It means to deviate from the truth, to transmit or transpass or transgress means to willfully break God's laws. And we're dead in those trespasses in sins. And of course, sin means to miss the mark. It means to wander from the path of God's righteousness. It means to violate God's law. Now, sin kills people because it separates them from the source of life. Who's the source of life? Almighty God is the source of life. When you're separated from the source of life, you're going to die, right? Remember, I'm dating myself back now, but go back probably even pre-World War II. Remember the old days when you had deep sea divers? This is before the advent of the compressed air tanks. Marty Buck, you scuba dive. Now we take portable compressed air tanks, we put them on our back, and we can go underwater. You see the scuba diving on natural, uh, on, on uh, nature TV, etc. But back in the day, you put the diver in a diving suit. I mean, they had a very heavy suit, and they would go down, and they had this tube, this hose that they pumped air and oxygen and compressed gas and whatever they needed all the way down underwater from this hose from a boat on the surface. And if that line was cut, 
the diver was going to die because that hose was connected them to the source of oxygen, which was their life. Sin has cut the connection, the umbilical cord, if you will, between God and people, and people without Christ are dead in trespasses and sins because sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is ear so dull that it cannot hear. God doesn't need hearing aids. Verse 2, But your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, before Christ, sinners are separated from God, but they don't believe they're dead in trespasses and sins. Every sinner I know, without Christ, thinks they're doing fine. You ever talk to them? Oh, life is good. You know, I mean, the fact that I've got cancer, life is good. The docs are going to make me well. I've never met anybody yet who says, you know, I'm due to leave here in a matter of weeks and I'm going to go to hell and I'm okay with it. I've never met one person without Christ who said that. They all have some kind of a line. Well, you know, I, I can get well and I'm okay and God's going to grade on the curve and, you know, at least I got a C and he's, you know, he's okay with average. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. People without Christ are dead, but they think they're alive. How many of you have ever seen any zombie movies? Yeah, zombies, you got it. The Walking Dead, you know? That's what spiritually dead people are like. They're physically alive, but spiritually dead. See, before Christ, that was us. We were all separated from God, but we thought our relationship with God was just fine. The truth is, we were deceived. And we were enslaved because we were deceived. Before Christ, people are really controlled by three forces. Three forces, the world, the devil, and the flesh. Let's pick that narrative up at verse 2. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Here's the principle. Before Christ rescued us, we were enslaved by the world that pressured us, the devil who deceived us, and our flesh that enticed us to sin against God. Before Christ rescued us, we were enslaved by the world that pressured us, the devil who deceived us, and our flesh that enticed us to sin against God. So the three powers that influence people to sin are the world, the devil, and the flesh. And Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you walked, you lived according to the course of this world, which literally means the age of this world. By the way, when he's talking about the world in spiritual terms, he's not talking about the physical planet. Planet Earth is fine. The world, as Paul is describing, is a philosophy. It's an organized cultural and social system that seeks to eliminate God from every area of life. The world is a belief system that has no room for God. It tries to explain life without God. It tries to live life without God. 
And every day the world presses us and pressures us to what? Conform to it. You ever feel that pressure? The pressure just to go along, the pressure to adopt the cultural norms. And we've seen those cultural norms shift over time. Stuff that our culture thought was obscene 50 years ago is now very, very mainstream. And 20 years from now, stuff that is looked at today and gone, ooh, that's pretty wicked. In 25 or 30 years, if current trends continue, it will be accepted. Because the world system, as organized by Satan, who promotes the anti-God philosophy, continues to corrupt it. And that person, of course, is the devil. And scripture here calls him the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, the prince of the power of the air refers to Lucifer. Lucifer, which means light bearer or son of the morning, he was once the prime minister of heaven, the highest of all created beings. He was right under God, created, not creator, created, but he had the most responsibility of all the created creatures in heaven. And, of course, as you know, he led a revolt in heaven, a mutiny against God. One-third of the angels followed him, and he and one-third of the angels called demons or fallen angels were cast out of heaven, and he became known as Satan. Satan means adversary. Satan means one who resists. Satan resists and slanders both God's and God's people, and he's also known as the devil. The devil means slanderer. Now, the devil tells lies about you routinely, and the devil lies to you routinely. You know the number one lie Satan tells you? He tells you every day. God is not a good God, and you should not trust him. Satan will always try and attack your faith. It's precisely what he did with Eve. He created doubt. And he wanted to separate Eve from the source of life, which was God. Satan will spend his enti your entire life trying to separate you from the source of your life, Jesus Christ. And he will do it by sowing doubt and attacking your faith, which will cause you to doubt God and separate you from God because he knows once he can isolate you, you are dead meat because you can't fight him on your own. We require the presence of Almighty God to battle at. So Satan is a slanderer, and he's also a resister. And it says the prince of the power of the air, this is not the location of Satan. Satan's not necessarily in the air, but it refers to his invisible nature. Satan is not a physical being. He's a disembodied intellect. He's a spirit, and he and his armies are, of demons are invisible, but they are very, very powerful. Many people today ridicule the notion of demons, ridicule the idea of Satan, because they say, well, I can't see them. Well, you can't see x-rays either, right? Or radio waves or microwaves. But some of you heated something up in the microwave this morning. You didn't see the microwaves, but you saw what it did, right? It heated your coffee or tea up. So we necessarily can't see this invisible spirit world, but we sure can see its effects on people. We know that Satan is working in the sons of disobedience. See, Satan and his fallen angels disobeyed God, and now they're working very hard to influence you and I to disobey God as well. And the, when it says the sons of disobedience, sons of means characterized by. 
Remember back in the day, I guess they still do, we speak of our, our, our sons or daughters or grandsons or granddaughters as being what? A chip off the old block. Yeah, it's a really old block. Children resemble our parents because they have the same DNA as mom and dad. Sinners you know, resemble their father, the devil, because they have the same sinful, fallen nature as Satan does. Satan's disobeying God, and those who follow Satan are also disobeying God. Here's the reality. There's no neutrality. You are either following God, or you will be following Satan. You cannot say, I'm not following either. If you're not following God, you're following Satan right? So Satan's primary tool is deception. Satan is a liar. He's the best liar in the universe. He's a master deceiver, and he uses deception to blind people to the truth so that they think they're okay without a relationship with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In whose case, he's talking about the lost, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the truth of the gospel, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the reason when you share your faith with people, you need to pray, pray, pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes, open their minds to see because they are dead without the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, and they will not see without that. They're blinded by Satan until God opens their eyes. So Paul says, look, before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the world. We were deceived by Satan. And number three, we obeyed the lusts of our flesh. Now, the flesh is not necessarily talking about the physical body. It's talking about our old sin nature. It's talking about the sin nature we inherited from Adam. It's talking about our DNA. Our spiritual DNA is sinful because we were born in sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Our behavior comes from our nature. You know, you don't have to teach your children and grandchildren to sin. They just do it. It's part of their nature. It's what they inherited from Adam. We don't have to teach them to disobey. We don't have to teach them to tell lies. We don't have to teach them to beat up on their brother and sister. They just kind of do that automatically, just like you and I did, because we're born in sin. And before Christ, we were dominated by the desires of our fleshly sin nature. Romans 8, 7 tells us that the mind set on the flesh, that's the old sin nature, does not subject itself or obey the law of God for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, those who are before Christ, cannot please God. So before Jesus came into our lives, we were unable to obey God because we were controlled by the lusts of the flesh. And by nature, we're children of wrath. In other words, we were born in sin and God hates sin and just like children have a pretty close relationship with their parents, unbelievers have a close relationship with the wrath of God because they're rebels against God. And we were all rebels against God before the grace of Jesus Christ saved us. See, before salvation, the sinner doesn't have a problem with the world. 
The sinner doesn't have a problem with the devil. The sinner doesn't have a problem with the flesh. No problems. It's only when you come to faith that the warfare begins. The story is told of two young fish. They're swimming along, and they meet an older fish who asks them, Good morning, boys. How do you like the water? The older fish swims away. One younger fish turns to the other and says, What's water? For the unsaved, the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's the water they swim in. It's the environment they live in. And they are as at home in it as a fish is in water. And they're as unaware of it as the fish is in water. They're controlled by it, and they don't even recognize its existence. When we come to faith in Christ, we now are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil because we understand that they are trying to destroy us. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. Because he loved us, God made us alive in Christ in order to display his grace for all eternity. Because he loved us, God made us alive in Christ in order to display his grace for all eternity. Two of the most encouraging words in the Bible are the first two words of verse 4. But God. Throughout Scripture, you will always see this. Human catastrophe, human disaster, human disobedience, and you see all the human brokenness, and then in contrast, but God. And we need to remember that in our culture today. When you read the news feeds, it's terribly easy to go, this place is falling apart. Of course it's falling apart. But God is still running his universe. He does not need us to tell him how to run his universe. He is still in control of everything. The Bible is filled with the biographies of people like you and I. When you read the Bible, they're very human people. They struggle, they suffer, they laugh, they cry, they kill each other, they commit adultery, they die. Sounds like contemporary culture, right? But the answer to every problem throughout human history is always the same. And it's only the same. It's God. There are no human solutions to human problems. Not eternal solutions. But God. The biggest problem that every human faces is very simple. Our sin subjects us to the wrath of God. Because God is righteous and holy and he can't tolerate sin. God is holy and man is sinful, and God hates sin. But there's a problem. God not only hates sin, he loves sinful people. Now that's a big problem because sometimes my sin and me are kind of pretty, in, pretty, pretty bound up there together. So how's, gonna, how's God going to hate sin and still love me? That's what mercy is called. God loves and his love expresses himself in mercy because dead men 
can't save themselves, but God can. One of the things we need to, to understand is salvation is never a joint effort between you and God. Never a joint effort between you and God. Only Jesus saves. This is going to come as a bit of a shock to some of you, but you and I had nothing to do with our salvation. I'm going to explain that in a second. God is rich in mercy. Mercy means overflowing with undeserved kindness. It means compassion. God is a compassionate God. He sent Jesus Christ to demonstrate that compassion. And it says he's rich in mercy because of his great love. Now, God's love is not sentimental. It's very intentional. It's not accidental. God's love is unconditional. It's not equivocal. God's love is sacrificial. It's not selfish. God's love is active. It's not passive. God always acts for the benefit of those he loves. It's intriguing. When you look at the Old Testament, five-sixths of the Bible is about the nation of Israel. Was Israel a perfect nation? Israel sinned regularly, routinely, on an ongoing basis, and God forgave them regularly and routinely. One of the most egregious examples of their sin is they had just gotten the law of God that says, you shall have no other gods before me, right, at the Mount Sinai. Moses is on top of the mountain getting the law, and the nation of Israel is doing what at the base of the hill? Building a golden calf and having an orgy. And God tells Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out. And I'm going to start a nation of you. We're going to start over with you, which would be pretty good for the ego. Whoa, God's going to start over with me. Nuke them. Be real simple, right? <laughs> That's not Moses. Moses intercedes for the nation. Moses says, God, forgive them based on your character and your promises. By the way, if you want to have influence with God, always ask God to do things that will honor him. If you always want to get a yes when you pray, always ask God to do things that bring him glory. And he will always say yes. But that'll change the way we pray. Because now we're praying for his glory and not necessarily for ours. So Moses intercedes for the nation and asks God to forgive them. And God listens to Moses. And then Moses says, God, please show me your glory. And God says, well, you can't see my face, all my glory, because you'll die, but I can show you a part of it. And so he does that, and it says when God is showing his glory to Moses, he describes himself in these words, Exodus 34, 6. This is the character of God. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Do we need a God like that? We desperately need a God like that. This is the number one lie Satan will always say about God, that he's not a compassionate God, that he's a judgmental God only, that he loves to put people in hell. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is perfectly just and perfectly loving. So he hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And Jesus Christ died in our place so that we can experience his loving kindness, his compassion, his grace. There's an old hymn called The Love of God. 
And the third verse is probably one of the most poetic descriptions of the love of God. It says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, or every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We have no idea how much Almighty God loves us, except as we look at the cross. And then we understand greater love has no one than this, that someone will lay down their life for you and me. It says, but God, and then it says, God does three things. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. And God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Three times he says, with Christ or with him. We are made alive with Christ, we're raised up with Christ, and we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are so identified with Jesus Christ as our representative that when he was crucified, spiritually, we were crucified with him. When he was raised from the dead, we were made spiritually alive with him. When he ascended into heaven, spiritually, we went to heaven with him. And when he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God's right hand, we were seated with him in heaven. Galatians 2.20 says what? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, when we were born again, Jesus Christ gave up his life for us, but he also gave us his life. God the Holy Spirit came to live in you and I at the moment of salvation. You have eternal life because God lives inside you and gives you life. Now here's what's truth. Hard to hear, but truth. We had nothing to do with our physical birth. You weren't around. You didn't choose your parents. I know, I know. You probably think I could have done a better job than God did, but <laughs> your children were saying the same thing. <laughs> when we were born again, spiritually, we didn't have anything to do with that either. And you say, whoa, 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 Brad, hang on. The only way we have spiritual life is because God gave us spiritual life and made us alive in Christ. Even though we're physically here on earth, spiritually, we are with Christ in heaven. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. How are you born again? Why would you hear the gospel and respond unless God first drew you and called you and opened your eyes so that you could see? See, salvation is from the Lord. God never sits around and says... I don't know what I'm going to do. That Brad Hannock is so stubborn and so stupid, all of which is true. And I don't, you know, if he would just grab the rope that I throw him, I could save him. God never says that. God saved me based on his grace, not because I had any sense at all. 
And the one of the reasons the one of the, the, the reasons I got saved is very simple. God arranged my circumstances to create maximum pain in my life so that I would listen. I had to be broken on the wheel. Hopefully you came earlier and quicker and less painfully. But don't ever doubt that God can arrange your circumstances to move your decisions in a certain direction. He can and he will. And he does today because he loves us. And you say, why would God go to all that work? Well, it's not all about us. Scripture says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. See, the ultimate motive for why God does what he does is not you and I. And you're going, you mean it's not all about me? I don't know if I like this. It's all about him. It's his own glory that is the ultimate motivator of God's behavior. God delights to demonstrate his grace. And you and I who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ will be trophies of his grace for all eternity. We'll display his grace for all eternity. Salvation is a demonstration of God's glory. It's probably the greatest demonstration of God's glory. And redeemed people in heaven will reveal God's character for all eternity. You know, one of the reasons, have you ever asked yourself, why did God allow sin in the world? Wouldn't it have just been easier just to prevent it, right? And we could have just had been in Eden ever since the beginning and never had trouble. One of the reasons God allowed sin is so that his character would be displayed by his creation. You look at the creation, you see God's power, his authority, his ever-presence, his omniscience. How do you see the mercy of God? How would you see the love of God? How would you see the compassion of God? The love, mercy, grace, compassion of God are ultimately only revealed by the cross. Amen. That God demonstrates his love by what? Dying on behalf of those who are separated from him because of their rebellion. So the character of God is revealed through the cross, and the cross can only take place if there is a need for it, and that is the sinfulness of humanity. God has reasons beyond our comprehension, which I am very grateful for. So how does all this take place? What are the means by which God makes this happen? Verse 8, and I know most of you have memorized this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Here's the principle. Salvation is the gift of God. It cannot be earned, but only received by faith and humility. Amen. Salvation is the gift of God. It cannot be earned, but only received by faith and humility. The story is told, um, Billy Graham was driving through a small southern town. He was stopped by a policeman and charged with speeding. This was back in the 50s and 60s. Graham admitted his guilt, but he was told by the officer he must appear in court. The judge asked Graham, guilty or not guilty? When Graham pleaded guilty, the judge replied, that will be $10. $1 for every mile you went to the speed limit. Suddenly, the judge recognized Billy Graham. You have violated the law, he said. The fine must be paid, but I'm going to pay it for you. He took a $10 bill from his own wallet, attached it to the ticket, 
and then took Graham out and bought him a steak dinner. <laughs> that, said Billy Graham, is how God treats repentant sinners. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. That's not having to pay the fine because the judge paid it for you. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's the steak dinner, right? When we talk about being saved, saved literally means to be rescued. Saved means to be rescued from danger or destruction. When we say Jesus saved me, it means he saved you from destruction and danger. He kept you safe and sound. Contrary to what the world says, everyone needs saving from the wrath of God, and we are saved by faith through, I mean, by grace through faith. Grace is God's supernatural medicine that gives us new life and saves our souls. Faith is the hypodermic needle that injects God's divine medicine of grace into our lives. You understand that? By grace, that's the medicine. Through faith, faith is the means. Faith is the conduit. Faith doesn't save us. God's grace saves us. Faith is the mechanism through which God distributes his grace into our lives. Faith literally means to trust in something. It means to put your full weight on something. How many of you have ever been to Seattle and seen the Space Needle? Space Needle was built in 1962. It has an observation deck that's 500 feet above ground level, and, and, and you push a button, and there's multiple elevators that go up and down that Space Needle every day, and they take you up to the observation deck, and it rotates, and you get this beautiful view uh, of Seattle. Now, faith is not pushing the button. Faith is actually stepping into the elevator, putting your full weight on it because you believe that that elevator will safely take you up and down, right? Faith is not blind. You look and you go, well, Brad, I've seen the elevator go up and down multiple times. I have faith that it'll take me up and down too. Well, faith in Jesus Christ is not blind. You've only seen him change millions of lives throughout recorded history. You only understand the Bible is the most documented document, historical document of its era, without a doubt. So we exercise faith when we put our full weight on something, and that is a choice. That is a decision. So God does the saving. Salvation is from the Lord. He's the one who calls us, draws us, has laid down his life for us. Faith is our response to that. It's an act of the will. It's a choice to put your full weight on Jesus to forgive your sins and stop trusting in yourself to forgive your sins. So the only thing we do in salvation is receive. God's done all the work. We simply say, I choose to believe. I choose to live in accordance with what God has done on my behalf. I'm going to turn away from sin and I'm going to turn to Jesus. Turning away from sin is called repentance. That's 180 degrees. Turning to Jesus, that's exercising faith that he has forgiven your sins. So the basis of our salvation is God's grace. The means by which we receive that is faith or trust. Faith is not a human act that earns God's favor. Salvation is a gift. He's the giver and we're the receiver, right? How many of you have ever given gifts to your children? If you haven't, don't put your hand up. When you give a gift to your children and they put out their hand to receive your gift, 
Are they earning it? Is that a wage? If it's a gift, they are just receiving it. They open their hand and they receive it. That's what salvation is. The credit goes to the giver, God, not the receiver. God gave us his son, Jesus, who died in our place to pay for our, the penalty for our sin. We don't deserve it. We certainly can't earn it. If you work for it, then it's no longer a gift. It's a wage. And then God owes us, right? We can say we deserved it. However, if God alone is the source of salvation, then who gets all the credit? He gets all the glory at that point in time. See, our sinful human pride wants to say, well, you mean I can't do anything to earn it? No. No, you can't. You can receive it with humility and faith and gratitude. So God's grace is a gift. The faith to believe is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Why are you saved? What was God's purpose in saving you? Yes, I know he loves you. I know you're special, right? We all are special, right? But God has purpose in your salvation beyond spending eternity with him in heaven. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in him. Here's the principle. We are not saved to sit, but to serve. We glorify God when we complete the good works he planned for us to do. We were not saved to sit, but to serve. We glorify God when we complete the good works he planned for us to do. Now, this word workmanship is where we get the word poem, P-O-E-M, which literally means to make. It means to create. So it has a, an element of craftsmanship involved in that. God created, of course, the heavens and the earth and, and the universe and us. And whatever God makes is a work of art. And you and I are God's masterpiece. Redeemed people are God's masterpiece. God is the master craftsman and he created us in Christ Jesus for a purpose. Obviously for his glory and one of the ways we glorify him is to do good works. Now, good works are not the root of our salvation. They're the fruit of our salvation. God didn't save us because of our good works, because God's standard of righteousness is 100%, and none of us are there. He saved us by faith in order that we would do good works. God has work for us to do it, and by the way, he expects his work to be done well. Martin Luther once said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. <laughs> he does. The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Have you ever noticed that the universe is really well-crafted? There's no slop in God's universe. 
There's no excess parts in God's universe. Every single thing has purpose and meaning and utility and beauty and reason. And God is the master craftsman. God doesn't make junk. You know what the implication is? We shouldn't either. We should be known by people of excellence. What we do should obviously reflect on God. It does reflect on God. So we should be good craftsmen, good craftspeople at whatever we're doing. We're to live a life of good works, not a life of mediocre works. Shoddy work does not reflect well on the character of God. See, God not only expects us to do good works, he's already prepared them for us to do. He's got the job description already written up. You don't need to figure it out. He's got to figure it out. He created us according to his divine blueprint, divine specifications, and he has a job description for you to do that's already custom written, just for you. Paul says we should be walking in those, and walk, of course, is, it's, it's a metaphor for live, for live. We should live in them. It's like a pedestrian who walks down a sidewalk or the bike path or, 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 or a pathway. The pedestrian doesn't make the path. Path's already been established. Our job is to walk on the path that God's already created for our lives. We have been created according to God's divine specifications. The Bible says that each one of us has at least one spiritual gift. Many of you have more than that. God didn't give you the spiritual gifts for you to sit. He gave them for you to exercise them, to sweat with them, to create his work on planet Earth through his power. We don't do it in our own strength. He gives us the capacity to do it, but he has a job description for you written up from eternity past. The question is, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? We can't do God's good works in our own strength, but he's given us the spirit in order to do that. We glorify God when we do the good works he already has lined out for us to do. Matthew 5, 16. It says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven, your father in heaven. You know, tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and I know you, you will have a plan for the day. I don't know what it is, but I know you have a list either a written list or a mental list about what needs to get done today. You know something? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, God has a list too. And it's been written from eternity past. He's got Monday already written down for you because he knows exactly what's going to happen to you. He's got a list of good works for you to do tomorrow and it's already written down. However, we don't always walk the path that God has for us. Many, many times we like our plans. And this is Brad preaching to Brad because I really like my plans. And I think they're really good plans. So it's very easy for me to say, I got these four things and I start working on them. Now there's two sets of mistakes. Number one is that what God wants me to work on. And number two, 
I think I'm so large and in charge, I can do it on my own strength. Now, that's ignorant and stupid, and I'm good at both. Doing good works is God's intention, but it's not inevitable. God doesn't force us to do those good works, right? Each day, we choose to either do what God has for us or to do what we have for us. And the only way for, to fulfill God's plans for each day is to ask him and say, Lord, this is your day. This Monday is your gift to me. What is it you want to accomplish today through me? Open my eyes to show me what you want me to do and then fill me with your spirit so that I have the power to do it. And God will bring stuff into your life and you will say, wow, I had a divine appointment today. God just arranged that. Yeah, he's got that for you every day. It's just most of the time we're asleep at the wheel. We don't see it. But believe me, God has it there for us. When we live life God's way, we, he gets all the glory. What do you get? You get all the joy. Because when we do it his way, we have the delight and the joy of a relationship with our Heavenly Father who delights in us, who loves to love us and accomplish his purposes through us. Let's review, and then Marty or Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praises. Point one, summary. Before Christ rescued us, our sins had separated us from God, and we were spiritually dead. Number two. Before Christ rescued us, we were enslaved by the world that pressures us, the devil who deceives us in our flesh, who entices us to sin against God. By the way, those three have not disappeared in your life, right? Are you at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil? Of course. But greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. So you have victory. Number three, because he loved us, God made us alive in Christ in order to display his grace for all eternity. I have no idea what that means, but 1 Peter tells us the angels long to look into salvation because they don't understand it. Isn't that interesting? God's grace for them is a mystery, and we will be displays of his grace for all eternity. Number four, salvation is the gift of God. It cannot be earned, but only received by faith and humility. If you want to be grateful for something, say thank you to Jesus every day, multiple times a day for salvation. It's the greatest gift that we've ever received. And lastly, we were not saved to sit, but to serve. We glorify God when we complete the good works that he has planned for us to do. Thank you for being here. Uh, continue to read ahead. We'll continue on in the Ephesians uh, next week, Lord willing. And I do love you all. And now that you know, yeah. you do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.